The lettuce did romaine longer than Liz Truss. The lead starts right now. Political upheaval in the United Kingdom. Liz Truss resigns as the British Prime Minister only 44 days in, making history for her short tenure at 10 Downing. You will never guess who is now vying for her job. President Biden hitting the road for the midterms. He's in Pennsylvania touting infrastructure alongside Democratic Senate candidate John Fetterman. But would it be better for Democrats if Biden stayed at the White House? Then breaking news in the search for a missing Princeton University student. Police have recovered a body. Hello and welcome to The Lead. I'm John Berman, in for Jake Tapper, and we begin today with our politics lead as President Biden hits the campaign trail with just 19 days until the election. Biden making a road trip to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania today, his 18th trip to the Commonwealth since he became president, and the 19th is next week. This time it was to highlight how his bipartisan infrastructure law is rebuilding the nation's crumbling roads and bridges. He delivered remarks from the Fern Hollow Bridge, which is being rebuilt with federal funds, after collapsing in January. The president is also there to help boost Senate candidate John Fetterman in what is a critical, nearly must-win race for Democrats' hopes to maintain control of the Senate. He will headline a fundraiser with Fetterman in Philadelphia later this evening, a rare appearance for Biden with a candidate in a competitive Senate race amid the president's sagging approval numbers. CNN's MJ Lee is traveling with the president in Pittsburgh. And MJ, while many of the president's accomplishments have been well-received, Biden himself unpopular and many Democrats are keeping their distance from him. So how is the White House dealing with this reality? Yeah, John, if you take a look at the president's recent travels and public events, uh, it is not a coincidence that you're not often seeing him at political rallies, stumping for individual candidates that are in uh, competitive races. Uh, There is a recognition among advisors around him at the White House. There are uh, other ways for him to be most helpful right now, uh, given the political environment. So there are a lot of official events like this one that we're seeing where really he is focused on uh, talking about the Democratic Party's uh, legislative accomplishments. And then, of course, there's raising money, attending fundraisers and making sure that he is able to help get money for the party and uh, different candidates. Uh, But I will say there is one important dynamic to point out, which is that uh, even for some of the Democrats who might feel a little wary appearing physically alongside the president right now, they are still very much eager to run on his agenda. Uh, It is what one Democratic official told me uh, they see as sort of a half-seas situation. Now, at this event today, which was all about infrastructure. If you looked at the front row uh, of the seating, you saw a number of local elected officials, including Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman, uh, Senator Bob Casey. We saw uh, the governor of the state here as well. And of course, uh, Fetterman, the president, is going to be attending another event with him uh, later this evening evening in Philadelphia. This is one of the Senate races that are being most closely watched and certainly a seat that Democrats are very much hoping to pick up. And the president used this bridge, the Fern Hollow Bridge, as a backdrop to tout infrastructure. What's the significance of that? Yeah, you know, if you are wanting to give a speech that is about the nation's crumbling infrastructure, there's probably not a better backdrop than what you see behind me. Uh, This is the bridge that collapsed back in January. You might remember that the president was set to visit Pittsburgh, and then we got news of this bridge collapse just hours before he left Washington. Uh, And he talked about the fact that the money from the bipartisan infrastructure law, uh, even though it didn't directly go towards this bridge, that it was able to basically free up other uh, federal funding that could go towards rebuilding this bridge as quickly as possible. Take a listen to some of what he said. 
and a complete catastrophe was avoided. But it never should have come to this. For too long, we talked about building the best economy in the world and the best infrastructure in the world. We talked about asserting America's leadership. We started about the best and the safest roads, railroads, ports, airports, and so much more. But now, now we didn't do it. We we're finally getting to it. The president saying that he hopes that the bridge will be completed by Christmas time. And then he also sort of jokingly promised that he would be back in Pittsburgh so that he can walk across that bridge himself. John. Yeah, it was on the air when that bridge collapsed. It was something to behold. Uh, MJ Lee, thank you very much from Pittsburgh. So winning in Pennsylvania's suburbs, especially with women there, is key for both parties. Democrats are leaning into abortion rights to gain support, hoping the energy from that can overcome Republican messaging that the country is moving in the wrong direction. But as CNN's Jessica Dean reports, many say they're more focused on inflation and the economy. I'm Dr. Oz. I approve this message. As ads for the hotly contested Pennsylvania Senate race flood the airwaves in the final weeks of the campaign, it's the Philadelphia suburbs where women may end up deciding the outcome. Oh, I am fired up. The four so-called collar counties that surround Philadelphia are home to some of the state's most affluent and educated female voters, and they have a big independent streak. We know that these voters have moved in recent years towards Democrats, but they have a long tradition of voting for Republican candidates. Most of the women we talked to have voted or considered voting for someone in both parties. In the past, I was independent and I would vote on either side, but it's become clearer and clearer that I need to vote democratically. In 2016, um, I realized that there needed to be a change. And um, so at that point, I decided that I was going to um, become a Republican. Burwood Yost has studied Pennsylvania voter trends for years. It's really going to be an interesting push-pull between these concerns that voters have about the economy and, the, and inflation, and then concerns about abortion rights. In Bucks County, Pennsylvania, women we spoke to named three key issues swaying their decision, the economy, crime, and abortion rights. I'm voting based on um, our economy and um, based on the crime. Sharon Jackson said the country is moving in the wrong direction. I go to the grocery store and I'm like, oh my goodness, this cost me $250. Oz has more to offer to me, and to, I think that he has a lot more to offer to our, our state. But for others, abortion rights remain top of mind, and they plan to vote accordingly. John Fetterman. And why? Because I care about reproductive rights. Is that the biggest issue for you? It is. There's a lot of other issues, um, but right now I've become a single-issue voter. I'm afraid of the abortion issue. Whether or not my own personal opinions of that, it's nobody's business. The candidates are targeting these suburban women in different ways. John Fetterwoman! Fetterman is leaning into the issue of abortion rights. Women are the reason we can win. Don't piss women off. While Oz released an ad this week emphasizing political moderation. Extremism on both sides makes things worse. We need balance. Less extremism in Washington. Both campaigns signaling they understand the potential impact of these voters in a race where the result could determine control of the Senate.
And again, for his part, Mehmet Oz continues to lean into that moderation that we saw in that, uh, uh, that ad as he tries to appeal to these more moderate female voters. As for Fetterman, a source telling us he's going to continue hitting those collar counties right outside of Philadelphia here. He's going to be doing smaller, more intimate events uh, with female lawmakers talking about gun safety, about abortion rights, about economic issues. Uh, he's been doing larger rallies, John, but they want these to be kind of smaller, uh, more conversational uh, events with women in these very critical suburban counties. John. All right, Jessica Dean in Philadelphia. Jessica, thank you so much. Let's discuss with Errol Lewis from Spectrum News and former Trump White House staffer Alyssa Farah Griffin. Alyssa, I want to start with you on the subject of the battle for women voters. Independent women obviously are key here. There's a new New York Times poll out this week which finds Republicans leading among independent women by 18 points. Last month in that same poll, Democrats were leading by 14 points. So how much of a worrying sign is that for Democrats? It's incredibly worrying for Democrats. Uh, Republicans have the advantage here, though this race is neck and neck. They're both uh, Oz and Fetterman are at basically 46 percent. This is, a you know, just a hair between the two. But at the end of the day, we're seeing inflation is getting worse. The latest numbers that are coming out, we're going into the winter season. The average family is going to spend $900 more heating their homes in the winter season. People are voting on the economy. You've, uh, you've seen focus groups of female voters who are saying, listen, the abortion issue matters to me, but being able to f- put food on my table matters more. So I think this is a race where, by the way, I think Oz pulls it off, but it's going to be interesting because I think you're likely going to see a split ticket where you have Shapiro's obviously been way ahead on the governor's side, but I think Oz could end up pulling it off for the Senate. Errol, what about the numbers and what about you heard, uh, what you heard from the women in Jessica's piece? Interestingly enough, if you look at the numbers, um, Oz has been closing, um, mostly by driving up the negatives on Fetterman so that, you know, in the past he was, I think, at something like, you know, 36 percent unfavorable rating. That's been pushed up now to 46 percent and his favorables have not moved. So he's going in a direction he's not happy about. It's probably why he's doubling down on abortion and trying to get to those suburban women because they can make the difference. No one can take them for granted. Hillary Clinton arguably did in 2016 to her detriment, and they don't. The Democrats don't want to make that same mistake. What was notable about John Fetterman being with President Biden today, Errol, is that he was right. Most candidates, Democratic candidates in these competitive races, have sort of kept their distance from President Biden. So, how advantageous is it for Fetterman to have Biden there with his low approval? I, I think it's an understandable move uh, for somebody who, again, his negatives are going up. He's got to s- sort of do something about it. He knows that among out of all of the states, other than Delaware, this is the one that is closest to home, literally, for Joe Biden. He's made multiple appearances there, like two or three in one week. Uh, he's not going to let this go. He's a son of Scranton, on and on and on. It is his base. He's gearing up for re-election in 2024. So uh, to stand next to a president who, after all, did put a lot of money into infrastructure, um, has offered you know $10,000 each to people who are behind on their, their student loans, um, there's an argument there for Joe Biden, and Fetterman, I think, is, is taking a relatively small gamble in saying that if you like this president, you should like me too. Let's go south and look at Georgia right now, an incredibly competitive Senate race there between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. Raphael Warnock, the Democrat, has really not leaned into the allegations on Herschel Walker that he paid for an abortion despite being publicly against abortion. Until now. Now the Warnock campaign is going on the air with this commercial. Let's look at it. 
Herschel Walker wants to ban abortion. There's no exception in my mind. Like I said, I believe in life. There's not a national ban on abortion right now, and I think that's a problem. But for himself? Herschel Walker paid for an abortion for his then-girlfriend. She supported her claims with a $575 receipt from the abortion clinic. Even his own son is saying Walker is lying. Again, Alyssa, this is from the Warnock campaign, which had been quiet on this subject, not anymore. What do you make of this change in strategy? I think they see the polls still tightening. They thought that these allegations against Herschel Walker were going to do more to damage him. And in fact, he had one of the biggest fundraising periods after the allegations came out. So I think it's honestly, this is about turning out female voters. Again, though, this is this is a race where I think you're Kemp is very much outperforming Stacey Abrams, but you could end up seeing a Republican win as the governor, and Warnock could pull it off in the Senate, but it's neck and neck. It's too close to say. You know, Errol, the uh, communications director for the National Republic Senatorial Committee, Chris Hartline, put out a statement about this ad saying, how you know Herschel Walker won last week's debate and has all the momentum. I'm not sure I would agree with that assessment. If you look at uh, various polls, you know, like the last half dozen, I mean, you know, Emerson, Quinnipiac, even Trafalgar, they all show that since this uh, allegation about paying for an abortion came out, uh, Raphael Warnock's lead has increased, not by a lot, but by a little, two to four points. So what do you do? It's the closing weeks. If you're Senator Warnock, you want to turn that small lead into a bigger one. And I think that explains these ads. I don't think it's desperation by any means. I think he wants to take his small lead, turn it into a bigger one, and perhaps the margin of victory. And he has run a a very prudent race, Warnock has. He's focused on economic issues, his record in the Senate, as opposed to Stacey Abrams, which I think has leaned a little further into identity politics and the abortion issue. And this is a consummate purple state. People are still going to vote on the economy. Well, we have you here. You worked for Mike Pence uh, in the White House. Mike Pence did an event with the Heritage Foundation last night where he was asked a question about whether or not he would vote for Donald Trump in the general election. Let's listen to the question and the answer. If Donald Trump is the Republican nominee for president in 2024, will you vote for him? Well, there might be somebody else I'd prefer more. All right, Alyssa, we have about 30 seconds left. Put on your Pence Dakota ring. What just happened there? He's smart. Anyone who's planning to challenge Trump in 2024 on the Republican side is inevitably going to have to distance themselves at some point. Being the first out of the pack to do that and being the most prominent former Trump official to do it is giving him an early advantage. And he does it in the gracious Mike Pence way with humor and not making it smacking him over the head. I think it was a smart move. Alyssa Farah, Errol Lewis, great to see you both. Errol, twice in one day. Thank you very much. So... (laughs) In lettuce, they no longer trust. British Prime Minister Liz Truss resigns after only 44 days in office, and there could be a replacement by next week. Plus, we do have breaking news in the Kevin Spacey sexual misconduct trial. A verdict is in. That's next. We do have breaking news. The jury has reached a verdict in the civil sexual misconduct trial against Kevin Spacey, finding the actor not liable for the battery allegations. Anthony Rapp had sued the Oscar-winning actor for $40 million, alleging that in 1986, Spacey invited then-14-year-old Rapp to his home, where he grabbed him and pressed his groin into Rapp's body without his consent. Want to bring in CNN's Gene Casares, who has followed this case from the very beginning. And Gene, the jury reached this verdict pretty quickly. They just began deliberating a little more than an hour ago. It was... Go ahead. That's exactly right, John. To be precise, it was an hour and 20 minutes, and they found 
Uh, Kevin Spacey not liable for this. It was 1986. Anthony Rapp, a young actor, was 14. He alleged exactly what you just said, that he was invited to a party at the apartment here in New York City of Kevin Spacey. And he was it was a party and there were other people there. And he went in and he sat in the bedroom. He shut the door. He watched television. He remembered who was on television. He saw Mo uh, Molly Ringwood was there and uh, it was David Letterman's show. And then he said that a very drunk Kevin Spacey came in, lifted him up like a groom would lift up a bride to cross over the threshold, put him on the bed and laid on top of him. I was in the courtroom for the closing arguments and when it got to the point that, that Kevin Spacey's attorney gave the closing argument, she took that scenario right there and said the devil's in the details. She said, first of all, we tried to find anybody at that party last that night. There was no party. Nobody came forward. There no, was no bedroom. The floor plan was presented to you in evidence. It was a studio apartment. There was no door. You didn't go into a bedroom. Furthermore, David Letterman, Molly Ringwood at the guest, the plaintiff alleged it was just a couple days after he first met Kevin Spacey. Nine days later is when David Letterman had Molly Ringwald on television. So once again, it just doesn't add up. There was no battery, there was no party, and nothing happened. And the jury believed that by preponderance of the evidence, more likely than not, that it did not happen. Yeah, a civil trial, that is the standard. What do you think this verdict means for Spacey going forward? Well, it's interesting because the final word from the plaintiff's attorney before they started deliberating was, uh, d please do not let Kevin Spacey get away with this another time. And the, the defense attorney had a very, very big issue with that after they went out to start deliberating. There are cases in England, there are criminal cases, there are multiple ones. Um, at first glance, they appear to be serious, but at this point, I was in that Massachusetts courtroom uh, for one of the important trials of Kevin Spacey. Charges were dismissed, not liable here. And what the defense believed here was that Anthony Rapp just really was, was very angry that Kevin Spacey was not saying that he was identifying as gay. And because of that, he was going to get it out. He went to the advocate and he tried to get them to do the story. They said, we are not going to do that to someone who doesn't come forward themselves and say, I want to live as a gay man. They would not do it. So the motive was anger, resentment, jealousy, and wanting him to say who he really was. Jake Saris, thank you so much for being there for us, covering the breaking news. Kevin Spacey, not liable for battery. We turn now to another major story, topping our world lead, a 24-hour turnaround that will go down in history. From this... I am a fighter and not a quitter. ...to this... I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. Today, Liz Truss became the shortest-serving prime minister in British history, CNN's Bianca Nobolo reports from London where Truss's trail of economic and political destruction can prove very difficult to mend. Devastating resignations and fierce criticism. On Thursday afternoon, British Prime Minister Liz Truss gave in to the reality. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. That Liz Truss 
is elected as the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. It was just her 45th day in office. There was no time for a honeymoon period. Queen Elizabeth died on her second day. She will have been the shortest serving Prime Minister in British history. Parliamentary rules mean the Conservatives are still in charge. Its MPs can choose the new Prime Minister. The public must be looking at this thinking, what on earth is going on? This is the governing party. Absolutely. And, and, uh, absolutely. and I, I think we are deeply conscious uh, of the imperative in the national interest of resolving this uh, clearly and quickly. Mr. Speaker, last week the Prime Minister. The opposition Labour Party says enough is enough. And the public are paying with higher prices, with higher mortgages. So we can't have a revolving door of chaos. We can't have another experiment at the top of the Tory party. There is an alternative, and that's a stable Labour government. Economic issues are at the heart of her downfall. I have a bold plan to grow the economy through tax cuts and reform. When she took office last month, her government announced big energy subsidies, but also massive tax cuts for the rich and lifting a cap on bankers' bonuses. I wasn't the only one that thought it was a mistake. Markets, those traditional Tory allies, also disapproved. The pound tanked. The Bank of England tried to prop up the economy, and it got worse. She fired her chancellor in charge of the economy. You turned on promise after promise. On Wednesday, her Home Secretary left too, excoriating Truss as pretending not to have made mistakes. Have it. Wednesday night, MPs were allegedly physically manhandled in Parliament in an effort to win a government vote. One Tory MP called it an absolute disgrace. I've had enough. I've had enough of talentless people um, putting their tick in the right box, not because it's in the national interest, but because it's in their own personal interest. The coming days will determine this country's future for years to come. Tory MPs openly say Truss has destroyed their party's reputation for fiscal responsibility. Finding a consensus candidate will be no easy task for the Conservatives, and with some MPs voicing support for a return of Boris Johnson, the rifts are wider than ever. So, John, who will succeed the brief and brutal premiership of Liz Truss? Well, the first and second runner-up of the last leadership contest are likely to throw their hats in the ring. But what about that bombastic blonde elephant in the metaphorical room, Boris Johnson? Well, he is expected to stand, but whether or not he will meet the threshold of the amount of MPs that he needs to support him before the Conservative Party members get to finally decide who will become Prime Minister is an entirely different question. John. Yeah, that will be something to watch for sure. Bianca Nobolo in London. Thank you. And just so people know, we've been making a lot of produce jokes here. Lettuce and Liz Trust. Well, the reason is one British paper posted this, this photo, this streaming video of a head of lettuce over the last several weeks and was wondering whether the lettuce would last longer than Liz Truss in office. The lettuce did. All right now, a CNN exclusive. Trump's team may now actually welcome federal investigators at his Mar-a-Lago club. We'll explain. In our politics lead, former President Trump's legal woes, he has been waiting for the January 6th committee subpoena to drop since last week when the panel voted unanimously to subpoena him for his testimony and for documents. Earlier this week, Congresswoman and Vice Chair Liz Cheney said the subpoena was coming shortly. I asked Congressman Adam Kinzinger yesterday to define shortly, and he wouldn't. 
Committee members have said if Trump does not comply, they will take whatever next steps they need to take. Plus, unrelated to January 6th, sources tell CNN his legal team is considering whether to allow federal agents to come back to Mar-a-Lago, potentially to conduct a supervised search. The Justice Department has said in court filings it believes Trump failed to comply with a May subpoena, ordering the return of all classified documents, and that it thinks more government records are still missing. As CNN's Sarah Murray reports, sources say Trump and his team are reconsidering their approach and trying to reduce the former president's legal risk. Weighed down by legal woes. They broke into my house. Mr. President! Former President Donald Trump's lawyer is now considering whether to allow federal investigators to return to Mar-a-Lago for a supervised search. Despite Trump's adversarial approach towards the Justice Department... It's not a crime. And... They should give me immediately back everything that they've taken from me because it's mine. It's mine. Sources say Trump's team is considering a more accommodating approach with investigators looking into the handling of sensitive government documents stored at Mar-a-Lago. Trump's team aiming to reduce his legal risk as DOJ insists it still believes Trump has sensitive government documents in his possession that he must return. Nothing, though, is finalized and plenty are skeptical of the idea, with one person close to Trump telling CNN it's a risk to invite a DOJ lawyer to lunch, let alone back to Mar-a-Lago. Trump also still awaiting a subpoena from the House committee investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol. We all felt that um, our obligation is to seek his testimony, um, that the American people uh, deserve to hear directly from him, that it has to be under oath. And in another blow to the former president, a judge ruling former Trump election attorney John Eastman Hello, America! must turn over more of his emails to the January 6th committee. The judge saying Trump likely committed a crime when he tried to upend the 2020 election. We fight. We fight like hell. And if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. The judge writing some of the Eastman emails are sufficiently related to and in furtherance of a conspiracy to defraud the United States. In one particular set of emails, the judge noting Trump signed a court filing with numbers about alleged voter fraud in Georgia that Trump knew were false. The emails show that President Trump knew that the specific numbers of voter fraud were wrong, but continued to tout those numbers both in court and to the public, according to the judge. Trump slamming the judge on social media today, saying he shouldn't be making statements about me until he understands the facts, which he doesn't. Now, you may remember Trump put out a very bombastic letter slamming the January 6th committee after they voted to move forward with a subpoena. Now CNN is learning Trump has actually tapped some lawyers who will be responsible for dealing with the subpoena when it comes in. That's Jim Trustee and Harmie Dillon. So they will deal with the subpoena when it finally is served and potentially any negotiations with the committee, John. Sarah, but wait, there's more. I understand you've got some brand new reporting the prosecutors in Georgia have new grand jury testimony from two prominent witness witnesses. You know, who and how big here? Mm-hmm. A totally separate Trump investigation. Remember, this is a criminal investigation in Georgia into efforts by Donald Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election. And my colleagues, Zach Cohen, Evan Perez, and I have learned that Kelly Loeffler, who is the former U.S. senator from Georgia, as well as Pat Cipollone, who is the former White House counsel at the end of the Trump administration, have both testified before the grand jury in Georgia. I think this gives you an indication, both of sort of the prominence of the witnesses that the district attorney has been able to get in front of that grand jury, but also just how wide-ranging this investigation has been, John. Oh, indeed. All right, Sarah Murray, thank you for all that reporting. Appreciate it. Let's discuss with former state and federal prosecutor Paul Callen, as well as CNN special correspondent Jamie Gangel. Paul, I want to go back 
Two investigations and what Sarah Murray was just talking about there. The Mar-a-Lago document search, this idea that the Trump lawyers might invite federal agents back in to search Mar-a-Lago in a supervised setting. You've been at this a long time, both as a prosecutor and a defense attorney. Is this something that the FBI, the prosecutors would agree to? Well, John, I know you're a baseball fan and you've heard that phrase. There's no crying in baseball. Well, I can tell you in criminal law, uh, there is no such thing as a supervised search warrant mm-hmm. search. Um, there, uh, they will, uh, they being the prosecutors, will say that this is nothing more than a publicity stunt. Obviously, law enforcement authorities are not going to expect to find anything when you give somebody the opportunity to clean up the premises over a, a period of many, many weeks. So, I really think that that offer is an empty offer of no value to the prosecution. Mm-hmm. So, Jamie, on the. Com- Committee, the January 6th committee and the subpoena from them, as Liz Cheney said shortly, Adam Kinzinger wouldn't define shortly. Do you have a better definition of shortly? When might the subpoena come and how do we expect the Trump team to respond? So can I just talk about shortly a minute? I, I remember that Donald Trump, we have reported, has said, when is the January 6th committee going to be over? Because he does not like this. So I, I don't think it hurts the committee to wait another day. If I had to bet, I would say it's going to come tomorrow. Um, Let me just say, John, our understanding is the Trump lawyers uh, who he has hired to accept the subpoena are still deciding how to handle it. But this is going to be a legal dance. They don't want Trump testifying. We have seen, you know, Mike Flynn, John Eastman, Jeffrey Clark go in and, and plead the fifth. That is not their goal. There's going to be a legal dance. There's going to be negotiating that's probably not negotiating. There may be some legal maneuvering, but it's all to buy time. They know the committee has an end date and they're going to try to run out the clock. You know, on the subject of January 6th and the committee, Paul, a federal judge is ordering the release of emails from John Eastman, one of Trump's former lawyers, to the January 6th committee. And the judge said that these materials could be released because they fit into the so-called crime fraud exception. How high is the bar for that? Well, it is a high bar, John. The crime fraud exception uh, really pierces what is considered to be one of the most sacred things in the practice of law, and that is the attorney-client privilege. You sit down with your lawyer, you communicate with your lawyer, that's always considered confidential. But there is this one exception. If the lawyer and the client are conspiring to commit a crime, there's no attorney-client privilege. And here we have federal judge Carter saying, this is clearly uh, uh, these these emails fall under that crime fraud uh, exception because Uh, This attorney Eastman was plotting probably with the president and others to overthrow the government in an insurrection. And that uh, clearly is a violation of law. The judge specifically referred to the provision of law that makes it a conspiracy uh, to commit uh, this kind of activity against the United States to defraud the United States. That's a 10 year felony, very, very serious felony. So those are serious uh, words by a very serious uh, Judge Carter. Jamie, very quickly, as to the subpoena, what does the committee actually expect from Trump in terms of (laughs) how he will handle it? Do they really think that he'll testify? No. Uh, Look, Trump has said publicly that he loves the idea of testifying, which is classic Trump, John, until it comes time to testify. So I, I don't think anyone expects this to happen in the end. 
All right, Jamie Gagel, Paul Callen, great to see you both. Thank you very Thank much. You. We have new information this afternoon about how Iranian forces helped the Russian military hit civilian targets in Ukraine. We're live on the ground in Ukraine next. Back now with our world lead. You're looking at new video verified by CNN showing the moments that Ukrainian forces wiped out a Russian tank convoy in Luhansk. That's in the east. The White House now says that Iranian military personnel have visited Crimea to assist with Russian operations targeting civilian infrastructure in Ukraine using drones, which they are calling evidence of Tehran's direct engagement in this conflict. Meanwhile, Putin is deploying one of his favorite tools of war, propaganda. State media put out this video of Putin visiting recently mobilized troops where he tested a sniper rifle at a training ground. That was south of Moscow. As Russia's missile strikes over the border continue, this one hit an administrative building just south of Zaporizhia. CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, is close by in Kraviri. Clarissa, President Zelensky claims that Russia left explosives at a critical dam on the Dnipro River. Russia denies it, but it tracks with the mines and booby traps that Russian troops have left in other liberated areas. What can you tell us? So this is an interesting one, John, because basically the Russians have been saying for a couple of days now that they are trying to evacuate all civilians from the Kherson region because they claim that Ukraine is poised to blow up this Kavacha Dam. Now, the Ukrainians, of course, have said that that's ludicrous. They've accused Russia of essentially starting like what might be a false flag operation. We heard President Volodymyr Zelensky today talking in a video address to the European Council, and he said that they firmly believe, and others in his office have said the same thing, that the Russians could be potentially getting ready to blow up this dam, then blame it on the Ukrainians with the sort of intended effect of really creating a worsened impact or effect for ordinary civilians here in Ukraine. As you know, they have been hitting the civilian infrastructure relentlessly. There are now rolling blackouts throughout the country. There are certain regions where they're going to have to introduce now a limit on how much electricity each household can use. And Zelensky is essentially saying that the Russian tactic here is to try to create another refugee crisis, to try to force millions of Ukrainians from their homes as we get into the autumn and the winter and temperatures plummet. Um, they believe that Russia is trying to precipitate a sort of civilian crisis, if you will. Of course, the Russians are saying that's nonsense as well. And everybody else in the country is waiting with a lot of anxiety to see what happens, John. A lot of anxiety, to be sure. Clarissa, a Ukrainian official says that Russia is trying to bolster its troops in the south, not far from where you are, and plans to send the first wave of mobilized troops there. Tell us what you're seeing. So there are some things going on, and we can't really talk about them because the Ukrainians have very strict rules uh, with regards to operational security. And I would say there's basically something of an information blackout at the moment. So the vast majority of people really don't know exactly what's going on. It's clear that everyone is very focused on this Kherson region. And as Russia has been uh, forcing these civilians to evacuate, uh, the question is, would the Russian military evacuate with them using that civilian movement as cover? Or will they actually, as you just suggested, as one Ukrainian military official has suggested, double down on their forces, build up, uh, you know, increased posture there and then try to kind of lure the Ukrainians into some kind of a fight? 
We don't know exactly what the answer is, but we are certainly watching along with everyone else very closely, John. Clarissa Ward, we appreciate the care you are taking in your reporting. You and your team, please stay safe. Thank you. So this just in. Police say they have found the body of a missing Princeton University student. We have the details ahead. This just in for our national lead. Searchers this afternoon discovered the body of a 20-year-old Princeton University student who'd been missing for nearly a week. Seen as Bryn Gingras is in New Jersey at the university. Bryn, a tragic ending here. What are the, what are the authorities saying? Yeah, I mean, John, just a devastating conclusion for this family who has been searching for her for the last few days here on this campus. Now, the Mercer County Prosecutor's Office sending out a statement saying that the body of Miseraj Onate, 20-year-old junior here at Princeton, was found at 1 p.m. this afternoon uh, on the facilities near a tennis court by a facilities employee. That uh, there were no signs of injury or in her death does not appear suspicious or criminal in nature. It'll, of course, be up to the medical examiner to decide uh, the cause and manner of her death. But the university also sending out a statement to the student body here, and I want to read part of it said to you. It says, uh, Miserach's death is an unthinkable tragedy. Our hearts go out to her family, her friends, and the many uh, that knew her and loved her. And they also added to that statement that there doesn't appear to be any threat on this campus, sort of easing any fears and tensions uh, that may have come about because the fact she was missing for several days. We know that there was a search that was going on since Monday by the university, by the student body here that has been here on campus. Some people have gone home since they are on fall break. But of course, this is not the news that this family who said that uh, Ms. Arach was just the light of their lives, the youngest of three siblings, was full ride at Princeton, had such a bright future, even had a job that she uh, was looking forward to actually joining in 2024 after she graduated. But of course, this is just a devastating ending uh, to, to, to this young girl's life. John. It's going to be so hard for that family. We were thinking of them tonight. Brinjin Grass at Princeton, thank you so much. Yeah. So winter is coming. A look at just how bad it could get, plus an update to the extreme doubt and where it is getting worse. In our Earth Matters series, the U.S. drought is expanding. The map we're going to show you on the right now, uh, the one, uh, uh, the map on the right is now, I should say. The one on the left is from a year ago. 59% of the continental U.S. is experiencing conditions ranging from abnormally dry to exceptional drought. The latest trouble spots are in the Midwest and Central Plains. Things look better in the Southwest thanks to monsoon rains. Here's another way to look at how bad it's getting. Drone video showing distressingly low water levels along the Mississippi River between Arkansas and Tennessee. And the long-range winter forecast? Dry and colder than usual in the northern states, warm across the south and the Atlantic coast. So be sure to tune in for CNN Tonight with Jake Tapper. Jake will speak with former Republican presidential candidate Jeb Bush! That's tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, right here on CNN. You can follow me on Twitter, at John Berman, or tweet the show at the lead CNN. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.